This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Craig Cabanis, the senior pastor of Grace Church. Okay, John chapter 4, we we did 42 verses last week, and uh, today we're going to be much shorter. And uh, I don't just arbitrarily kind of pick verses. I just do what, what are the natural breaks? Like what's the natural story? So we just try to pick the account or the teaching section and go accordingly. And uh, so that's why we had a long one last week and a shorter one this week. John 4, verse 43. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem and at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son. For he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And he was going down, as he, as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour he had begun to get better. He began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what you teach us in it. We thank you for the the privilege of walking through this book together, the book of John, and all that you're showing us about the Savior. And we pray today that you would freshly grant us a vision of Jesus, that we would have that we would be captured in our hearts by an increasing understanding of your greatness O god we pray that you would speak to us by your holy spirit right now and i pray that you would open our eyes that we might be inclined to trust you for those in the room who may not know you i pray they would be inclined to trust you and would receive you today for the first time and for those who know you i pray that we would be inclined to trust you afresh today as we see in this story. Lord, show us your wonder, your glory in this passage, I pray. Lord, help me, grant me uh, strength and wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, context is always important. The context for this passage is really key to understanding what's going on because there's a couple of, well, one in particular, confusing statements in here, maybe more than one. 
but one for sure that the context will help us understand. Here's what's just happened. We studied last week this lengthy passage of Jesus going to Samaria, a place that was despised by the Jews, and reaching a woman who not only lived among the despised, but who would have personally been an outcast, for she was an immoral woman who had been um, married five times and was currently living with a man in a relationship with a man she was not married to. And Jesus reaches her... He loves her, reaches her, calls her to God the Father, draws her to a saving knowledge. And she basically goes out and reaches Sychar, which is her whole town. She brings her whole town or a large group of her town out to meet Jesus. And it's a wonderful story where this town of people listen to Christ and they follow him. So that's what's just happened. And now he has traveled to Galilee and He's been, verse 43, two days with the folks in Samaria, and now he comes to Galilee, and we get this statement. He travels to Galilee, verse 44, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own home town. So Galilee is his home region, not Samaria. So he's going to Galilee. He says, I don't receive honor. A prophet doesn't receive honor in his home area. And then, verse 45, so when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. Now this is curious. Because John adds this parenthetical statement. Jesus said that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. Verse 46, so when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. The question is, what kind of welcome did they give him? Was it a welcoming that would be characterized by honor to Jesus, the Messiah, it is, a, is it a welcoming that seeks to recognize Him for who He is? Is it a welcoming that is characterized by a desire to follow Jesus in discipleship? Is it that type of welcoming? No. He tells us what kind of welcoming it is. It's a welcoming of people who are excited about signs. For what He says is, They welcomed him. Why? Having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. Oh, so now we're back in chapter 2, where Jesus had gone to the feast, Jesus had done a number of signs, and look how he describes that. Go back two chapters, to chapter 2, when he's at the feast, and the Galileans are down in Jerusalem at the feast. And look what happens in verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, that's what we're talking about, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. He needed no one to bear witness about man. He didn't need anybody to tell him about man, in other words, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus is doing signs. People are saying, we love the signs we believe in. Jesus does not entrust himself to them because he knows what people are like. He doesn't need anybody to tell him about people. He created people. He knows about people. He knows what was in them. A desire for signs without a real desire to know Jesus. You see, they welcome him, but there's a big difference in welcoming Jesus and following Jesus. And in our own day, we've got lots of welcome and not as much follow. 
And that's the same case. That is the context for what he is talking about here. Jesus does signs not to receive a welcome, but to reveal that He's the Messiah so that folks would bend the knee and bow and worship to Him, receiving Him, trusting Him, believing in Him, following Him, desiring Him for Him. The signs point to Him. That's the whole reason for the Gospel of John being written. John said he wrote this book recounting these signs not so that Jesus would be merely welcomed, but that we would know who He is. Consider John 20. Our first sermon on this book, we talked about John 20, verses 30 through 31, where Jesus, where John tells us the purpose of this gospel. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written. Okay, why are these signs written? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. The signs are done so that you may believe He is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, that He is God in the flesh, come to save sinners, that He is bringing the kingdom of God, that He is bringing rescue to sinners, that you would know Him as the Savior and not merely the miracle worker. Because the miracles... Though they have great value, especially when someone is healed, for God cares and shows compassion to hurting people, or when He feeds hungry people, the miracles have value in and of themselves because He cares for people. But they always have a value beyond themselves and really a greater value, which is to reveal the nature of Jesus. So what's the context of this passage that we're reading in the Galileans, the context is the problem of a surface-level faith that is based on what Jesus does for people, that is based on miracles, that is based on signs that does not translate into genuine faith. That's the tension. So this passage starts with tension. Jesus is not honored, but they welcome Him because they saw the signs. So the tension is, what is real faith? Is And, and what about a shallow faith that is only in it for a sign or for God doing something that I want Him to do versus a real faith. That's the tension. Verse 46. So He comes to Cana in Galilee where He had made the water wine. That was His first sign. You recall that from chapter 2 if you've been with us. Jesus is at a wedding. They run out of wine. He takes water. He turns it into wine. He takes water out of purification jars. So the sign pointed to something besides more wine pointed to the fact that he is the new wine, ultimately, um, and uh, replacing the old purification of the old covenant. So he's back there, and there is an official that hears about this. At Capernaum, still in verse 46, there was an official whose son was ill. Verse 47, when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point, the son was at the point of death. So, this guy's an official. The word means typically is used to describe an official in the king's service. So this guy is likely serving Herod, who was the tetrarch of the area. Uh, He could be a Gentile. Actually, it doesn't tell us that. Uh, This is a different guy than the Roman centurion in the other Gospels where Jesus heals his son. That's a different account for a number of reasons. We know it's a different story. I'm not going to get into all that here. But but this guy is not that guy, but we don't know if he's a Gentile. Likely is if he's working for Herod. And he is a person of power. 
So the, the passage is telling us some things. This guy is an official. He's not just some guy. He's a, an official of the king, and so he's a guy who's used to power. He wields influence. He wields authority. So a, a guy of power comes to Jesus because he has a son who is at the point of death, verse 47. We don't want to too quickly pass over that or dispassionately just sort of toss out that detail. His son is about to die. I haven't had a child die. Some of you may have. But this guy is desperate because his child is about to die. Kent Hughes wrote, Nothing can shatter us more quickly or more completely than affliction falling upon our children. Nothing can shatter us more quickly and more completely than affliction falling upon our children. I haven't had a child die, but I have sat at the hospital bed of one of my daughters on the verge of very serious surgery. And so I know that parental sense of helplessness. When you can't do anything, you can't make the pain go away, you can't fix it, and you're just desperate. Numbers of you know that same feeling. You're helpless, you're desperate, you wish it was you and not your kid. And you're empty of all resources. And you're just crying out to God. That's this guy. This guy is a man of power, but now he's powerless. Because he can't heal his son. Who's about to die. And so he travels about 20 miles to Cana, because he hears Jesus is there, and he asks him to heal his son. Verse 47 again, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. This verb ask is interesting. It it implies a continual action. So he asks and, and repeatedly asks, and as a matter of fact, the NIV gets at that, because the NIV translates this, he begged. I'm not sure why the ESV goes with ask. I think that's the word, but there seems to be a force behind it that, that begged is what the NIV comes with. He begged Jesus. The man of power who's used to power, who's in the king's service, is coming to this town Because he heard of Jesus and what he did, likely what he heard of Jesus is either what he did at the Passover or what he did in this town, turning the water to wine. He heard of Jesus and he comes begging, would you please come? I mean, this is a big ask because it's 20 miles uh, without a car. So would you please come because my son's dying? Jesus' response, it's surprising on the surface. Verse 48. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. It's surprising because the guy probably isn't asking for an explanation of the nature of faith here, but Jesus is offering that. Um, Jesus is speaking into, as I mentioned before, the tension of the situation. Remember, he's in a place where people are looking for signs and welcome him on the basis of signs. One of the things that's important to note here is the you in the sentence. Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, 
it's not singular, but it's plural. So he's speaking to the guy, but he's speaking broadly, whether this guy's in a crowd or if he's just speaking broadly to the culture. That's why the NIV translates it, you people. You people won't believe unless you see signs and wonders. Or we would just simply translate that, y'all won't believe, right? Y'all won't believe. And in the deep south, y'all could just apply to this one guy. So you'd have to say, all y'all won't believe. Uh, like if you're from Alabama or Mississippi or someplace like that, like the deep south, y'all actually can refer to a single person as I understand it. So uh, y'all won't believe. Well, there's one guy. That's why you have to say all y'all. NIV, you people. The English is you, but you can be singular, singular or plural, right? So it's you people. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. You won't believe. So you're looking for the signs and wonders, but you won't believe in who Jesus is. You don't believe in what the signs point to, ultimately. Now, we're going to see in a minute, Jesus is loving the man through this response. He really is. We're going to see that. But, but this, is, this is what happens, is this guy distinguishes himself from the typical Galilean. Because he persists. There's a desperation, verse 49. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. This is the language of a man who says, okay, I understand you're saying something about signs and wonders. Would you please come now? We don't have much time. This is a man who has come to Jesus, note this, as his last resort. You're not on foot or by horseback or whatever it is, 20 miles away from your child's deathbed unless you are desperate. Notice this guy didn't send a servant. This guy didn't send his wife. This guy didn't send a relative. This guy left the deathbed of his son to go to Jesus because he is out of resources and he is communicating by the very fact that he is there at such a distance that he has no other resort. He has no other hope. He is looking to Jesus alone. That is a different kind of faith than the average person who says, we saw the signs, can you do some more of that? This is a guy that's leaning on Jesus alone. Jesus, if you don't come with me, he won't live. In other words, my only hope is to get you, Jesus, with my son because you can do something for him. I need you in my house now. And I don't think he's being rude or disrespectful, but he's not asking for a dialogue about faith. He's ultimately saying, though Jesus is teaching everybody about faith, he's ultimately asking for an urgent need. Jesus, come now. And then Jesus says this beautiful statement, a, a, a wonderful statement, verse 50. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. I, I'm not coming but I'm going to heal at a distance. Jesus, in chapter 1, we learn that He is the one that through Him everything came into being. Jesus created everything. He doesn't have to be on site. He doesn't have to physically be present. This is the God who speaks and the worlds come into being. And He is speaking here, Go, your Son will live. Only God has the authority to make an estate, a statement, I'm healing him now. You go on, everything's going to be okay. You can see his heart for this man. 
his response to this man. This man is being distinguished, maybe a Gentile, being distinguished from Jesus' own people who don't honor him as God, but who are after an experience, a sign, a wonder, a trick, a thing, whatever they're into. An amazement, a buzz, the latest thing, the buzz about this guy. Newsworthy, I want to be there. Did you see it? No, but I want to see it this time. Do something, Jesus. I hope he does something. I want to see it. You know what I heard he did? That's not this guy. You're my only hope, Jesus. That's what this guy's saying. And Jesus says, go, he will be well. He will live. Oh, look at this statement, verse 50. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went on his way. He doesn't get a sign that he sees. He doesn't get an evidence that he can touch. He doesn't get a proof. He gets the Word of God. He gets the Word of Christ. He's standing there left with the Word of Christ. And that's enough. That's enough. That's the heart of faith, is he takes hold of the Word of Christ and he goes his way. He goes his way. It's a raw faith. It's not the faith that has to see a sign. It's a faith that takes God at his word and responds. Do you see the contrast Jesus is making here between genuine faith and surface faith, which characterizes Galilee? He ends the conversation and he walks away with nothing but the word of Christ. Love what he says. He believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. He believed and he went on his way. It's that simple. As he was going down, he runs into his servants. They're coming to meet him. Why are his servants coming to meet him? Are they coming to say, your son died? You can imagine he's walking, he's riding, whatever he's doing, and he sees the servants coming toward him. You can imagine probably there's a sinking feeling. That's a test of faith. Why would they come? Did he die? That's a test of faith. But he gets with them. He talks to them and he he says, how is he? And they say, well, he's getting better. He's getting better. He's improving. He's going to be okay. And so he says, when did the fever break? When did it happen? And they say, well, it happened about the seventh hour. That'd be 1 p.m. So 1 p.m. yesterday, his, his fever broke. And it says, verse 53, the father knew that was the hour when Jesus said, your son will live. At the time Jesus spoke, the fever broke at a distance, 20 miles away. And he's blown away by that. And it says, he himself, verse 53, believed in all his household. He believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. He himself and his family would believe. They believe in Christ. And I think the text indicates here, I'll I'll show you why in a second. I think it indicates that he doesn't just believe in Christ as healer. But he believes that for sure. But he believes in Christ as more than physical healer. He believes in Christ as Messiah. And the reason I think that is because the language, he believed in all his household, He had already believed that Jesus' word was true. He had already said the man believed the word and he went on his way. So he already believed, but now he's believing again. I think he's believing, I think the second use of the verb believe shows he's believing something else. He's already believed Jesus is a healer. Now he's, wow, 
Now he says he's, he's believing. And the reason I think that is because verse 44, this was the second sign that Jesus did. This guy's commended. This guy's held up as a role model. What are the purposes of the signs, John 20, that you may know that Jesus is the Messiah, that you may know that He is the Christ. He receives His Son's healing. He receives His Son back from the brink of death. But He receives something much greater, a revelation that this Jesus who spoke at a distance and healed is not merely a miracle worker. He's the Son of God. He's the Messiah. He's who He claims to be. This is the Savior that has come. See, Jesus initially seems to have a rather callous attitude towards the guy, but he, he doesn't not, he doesn't. He's leading him along in a process. Jesus knows what he's going to do. Jesus knows how this is going to end up. Jesus knew the story before you and I read it for the first time. I mean, he knew what was going to happen. And he works with this guy and leads this guy and interacts with this guy <coughs> so that he would see a sign that would lead him to a place of faith. Ultimately, in the Savior. He's different than the others. Look at the prog- process. The others are all just looking for a sign and looking for Jesus to do something that they ask. So people come and they want Jesus to do something for them. And that's the basis of their relationship with Jesus. And, th- and that's somewhat understandable if you're in this guy's situation for sure. But he comes to Jesus not just to see a sign. He's not curious. He's desperate. So he comes as a desperate man with a desperate need, presenting a need. When Jesus doesn't initially respond, he doesn't go away despondent. He doesn't get angry. When Jesus doesn't instantly do what he says, he doesn't say, well, okay, I didn't, I didn't think so. He's not just in it. He's desperate for Jesus. So he persists out of his desperation. He begs and he says, look, come immediately. I need you to come. You're my only hope. There's a a Jesus-only hope in his soul that he expresses. When Jesus doesn't come and he doesn't do what he asks, but he gives a word that he'll be okay, he receives the word and he trusts the word. That's not enough for the crowds that have to have a sign. When he says this generation won't believe without a sign, he's saying this generation won't believe in the word. They won't believe in who I really am. They only want to see signs. And even when they see them, they won't really believe. They won't really believe. See, as is often the case, this man underestimates his need. At the moment, understandably, he thinks the greatest need in his life is for the fever to break and his son to uh, live. But there's a greater need in his life. There's a greater need for his son. There's a greater need for their family. This is the greatest crisis likely they've ever faced as a family. But this crisis points to a greater crisis. Life without knowing Jesus Christ. There's a greater crisis than a child on a deathbed, and that is a family that does not know the Savior. A child that does not know the Savior. A father that does not know the Savior. And so what he doesn't know is his need's much greater than he thought. And what he doesn't know is that Jesus is far greater than he thought. When he comes asking for a healing, he has no idea, or he may have an idea, but he doesn't fully know until later, he and all his household believe this is God, this is the Savior, this is the One, this is the Messiah, this is the Christ. He's everything. He healed my son, but he's done much more at the end of the story. See, genuine faith 
as we see in this story. Genuine faith takes Jesus at his word and sees Jesus for who he is. Genuine faith doesn't use Jesus merely to get what I want or need, but genuine faith takes Jesus at his word and sees Jesus for who he is. If you're here today and you don't know Christ as your Savior, you're not, you wouldn't consider yourself a follower of Jesus. You wouldn't consider yourself a believer, one who's committed to Christ. Um, I, w- I want to challenge you to consider this text. I mean, you may be like a lot, a lot of people are. This is very natural. Many of us in the room who are Christians would have, would have experienced this same thing. You may be someone who's waiting for Jesus to do something in your life to prove himself to you. You're looking for Jesus to do something. And if he'll do that, you'll believe. That's a very common approach. And sometimes it goes like this. There's a prayer that you pray. You may not even be a convinced believer, but you pray this prayer. God, if you'll do fill in the blank, I'll believe and I'll follow you. If you'll get me out of this mess, if you'll fix this situation, if you'll do whatever the need is, then I will follow you. Or maybe you're a person who hasn't become a convinced believer and and you've maybe read some of the Bible and heard the stories and you've thought this, Look, if I could see the kinds of things... Okay, so maybe it's not God just fixing something in my life that's a real need. But if I could see the kind of things that were recorded in the Bible, I would believe. If I looked out and a guy's walking across a lake and then tells me he's God, I'll believe. If a guy heals a body, I'll believe. If a guy with no food feeds 5,000 people, I will believe. The problem with that logic is that's not what happens. There's people that see all those things and they don't believe. They don't believe in Jesus as Messiah. They don't submit their life to Christ. They don't see that their greatest need is the need of a soul, the forgiveness of their sins, and so they come to Jesus as their Savior. They're wowed by something they see, but life goes on. Even healed people, the wonder of it, it fades over time. And we take it for granted. Even an amazing sight, later you come back and say, well, was that a trick or how'd that work? Or I don't know. Yeah, I know I saw that. But when you wake up on Monday morning in the throes of things, seeing that sign doesn't really uphold you and doesn't sustain you. So if you have the logic, if I could see the signs, I would believe too. I just want to submit to you that the point Jesus makes is that doesn't happen a lot. And in fact... I say this in all love. Jesus critiques that kind of faith and says that's not real faith. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about another type of faith, which is much deeper that's that's found in this passage, and that is to take Jesus at his word. What does he say? The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. If you're here and you're not a believer, if you're here and you're a church kid and you've grown up hearing you know, the stories and know about your parents' faith and know about other people's faith, but you've never really come to faith, here's what I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to change your criteria for faith. Because if your criteria is, is if Jesus will do this sign, that's not the biblical criteria. That's not the criteria that Jesus works with. It's this, it's this criteria. I take you at your word. 
This is what the Bible says, Romans 10. Faith comes through hearing, and hearing through the Word of Christ. God will use a sign, but it ultimately must point to what Jesus reveals in His Word, that He is the Savior. The reality that this guy finds, that we all find, is that we may have a great need in our life, but there is a need that is much greater that we may not be aware of. And Jesus comes primarily to meet that need. Listen, if you're in a situation and you say, Jesus, if you would just bring this healing, then I would become a believer. If you would just get me a job, if you would get me out of debt, I'd become a believer. If you'd bring me a spouse, I'd become a believer. If you'd fix this problem of loneliness that I have, then I'd become a believer. All of those are very serious problems. And we would love to walk with you through any of those. Those are difficult, difficult problems. But you have a greater problem if you're not a believer. And that is how will you, a sinner, all of us are sinners, how will you be right with the holy God of the universe? That's your greatest need. Every other need is temporal. No matter how strong, how bad it feels, how much it hurts, it's temporal. This one is eternal. Jesus may miraculously answer a temporal need, but it would ultimately be to show you His answer for your eternal need. And that is how can you be right before God. One author wrote this. He says, what the official in this story, what the official did not realize was that God was using this crisis in his family to expose the deeper need of his soul. A crisis in life will be used by God to show a deeper need of our soul. He may or he may not solve the crisis. There will be people that will tell you, if you will believe, the crisis will be solved. They are not teaching you the Bible. They're teaching something called a prosperity theology that says, if you believe, you will experience all blessings in life here and now. I'm not going to tell you that because that's not in the Bible. But I will tell you this that your greatest need will be answered. Your other need may be, but your greatest need, because Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast him out. Jesus said in the previous chapter, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish. That's a promise. That's a word to take and believe. That's a word to take and say, I trust you, Jesus I believe that I'm a sinner. Your word says that I'm a sinner. I believe that you came and gave your life, that you died on the cross to pay the price for my sin, that the judgment that's due me, you took it in my place, and that God poured out his anger, his wrath, his judgment for my sin on you as my substitute, that you were buried, that you raised, that you were raised on the third day to defeat the power of sin, and that you are alive today. I believe that. I've got a lot of problems. I've got a lot of needs. I've got a lot of aches. But I know I believe that and I'm going to take hold of that and I'm going to trust you to be my Savior. I'm going to turn from my sins and I'm going to turn to you alone, desperate that you would forgive my sins. I can promise you, based on God's Word, He'll never turn you away if you come to Him with that heart. He'll forgive your sins and He'll grant you everlasting life. And He will give you grace to walk through the challenges. He may fix them, He may not. But He will give you His Spirit 
to help you. He will give you His Word to enlighten you and strengthen you. He will give His people, that is the church family, to come alongside and walk with you. So that while I cannot promise it will all be fixed, I can promise there are resources you do not have now as an unbeliever that will come into your life and will help you along the way. And I can assure you this, that all of us, we, it all comes to an end very quickly. And when you die, you will be with Christ because you didn't trust yourself or anyone else. You came to Jesus alone and said, Jesus, save me. If you are a believer here, there is a message for you today as well. This passage isn't a passage that says that Jesus doesn't want you to bring your needs to him. Okay, This is not a passage that says Jesus is dissuading us from coming to him with our needs. As a matter of fact, the Bible commands us to come to Jesus with our needs. Come to the Father with your needs. The Bible says, cast all of your care on him for he cares for you. So it's not an option, it's a requirement. Isn't that great? God loves us so much, he requires us to bring our problems to him. So that he can strengthen us, comfort us, reveal himself to us, and many times remove the problem. That's, that's a loving God that doesn't say, okay, get yourself right and then come to me. He says, just cast it over on me and I'll meet you. That's glorious. So if you are here as a believer, we're called to come to Christ as well. But know this, that God will use the difficulties and the crises in our life to expose a depth of need we didn't know we have and to reveal to us a Savior who's greater than we imagine. God will take what are the crises of your life, and reveal himself to you. So, so as a Christian day, you may be enduring a financial crisis, a relational crisis. You say, my marriage is hanging on by a thread. You say, nobody knows about this in this church, but my marriage is a wreck. Nobody knows about this in this church, but I, I am about to lose it. I've got an addictive dominating sin in my life that nobody knows about, and it's, it's overwhelming to me. I'm despairing of life. It may be a relational conflict. It may be within your family, your extended family, your job. You have some kind of a health problem. You have an unrealized dream that you don't think is ever God's ever going to hear or answer. And that's the presenting situation you feel today. And that is real. I don't dismiss that. I don't say that's not real. I don't say, let's pray about that. Again, you're commanded to come to Christ. Let us come around you and bear that burden. So not, don't, hear, don't mishear me. I'm not for a moment saying, that's small, that's minor, that doesn't matter. That's huge, that's major, that matters. All I'm trying to say is what I think Jesus says here, that there's a need greater than that problem. And that is the need of our soul. And God in these kinds of situations oftentimes will take a very difficult circumstance and will graciously use that to reveal himself to us. And the way he does that oftentimes is we're requesting, would you come over here 20 miles with me? Because if you don't, he's going to die. And he gives us the word instead. Oftentimes he doesn't do what we want to fix the problem. Oftentimes he doesn't, if he does fix it, he doesn't fix it in the way we think. This guy thinks the only way is if you're here. 
He doesn't know that Jesus doesn't physically have to be there. He just needs to speak and everything changes. He's much greater than this guy knew. He's much greater than you know. He doesn't have to line it up. This doesn't happen in order for that to happen so that that happens, so that this happens, so that then everything will be okay. No, he has to speak and boom, it's done. People's hearts change. Circumstances change. The unbelievable happens. Why doesn't he always do that then? Well, he's God. He's sovereign. He's all-knowing. We, we don't know, but we do know this. He loves us enough that he is conforming us to his image. And the greatest thing he is after is a life that is changed and conformed to him. And he will take certain things and he will empty us and he will give us his word so that we hang on to his word and he will reveal himself to us so that we know him in a way that we never would have known him without this difficulty, without this challenge. Do we pray for the challenge to change? Yes, but we ultimately pray for God to change us. We're not merely praying for a change of circumstances, we're praying for a change of heart. And for the unbeliever, that means he goes from, Jesus, you must come to, I believe in you as Savior. Jesus loves us enough that he is the ultimate. And he wants to draw us to a place where we see him as the ultimate, because that's where we find life. What does he say in John 20? These signs are written, what? So that you may believe Jesus is the Messiah and that you may have life in his name. You do not have life if you are trusting everything else, including circumstances, going the way you would write them. That is not life. Life is Christ. In blessing and in suffering, life is Christ. That's the answer. God wants to work in our hearts in this. And I would never give this counsel flippantly. Somebody, we don't, what I'm saying here, I'm preaching the scripture, but if I was sitting down with someone one on one and they come in grieving, I, I pray that I would weep with them. I wouldn't start out with, there's something bigger here. Stop crying. Let's look at that. No, we weep. We carry the burden. We're very sensitive in how we bring this up because usually God will bring it up himself in the scripture. So we don't go around, well, it's insensitive. Someone says, I lost my job. Really? What's God teaching you through that? Whoa. Whoa. Teaching me I need to find some better friends is what he's teaching me. Teaching me you're insensitive. Now, is that an irrelevant question? No, it's, that's a pretty fair question. At some point, for God to bring up in the person's soul by His Spirit through the Word, and maybe through me if I get that invitation or that opportunity, and I can do so lovingly and skillfully, having walked with a person. But that's a very real issue. God is at something greater than we know, and He provides something greater than we know. Listen, this morning I read something that floored me. I, I don't normally read anything except the Bible and my sermon. My sermon notes is all I read on Sunday morning. But I checked my email, I got an email, and there was this article. And I actually read it because I thought it might apply to this sermon. It's an interview with Johnny Erickson Tata from uh, Christianity Today magazine. Johnny Erickson Tata is a woman, she's 60 years old, at age 17, she had a diving accident and became a quadriplegic. So from 17 to 60, she's, she's married now, and from 17 to 60, she has not been able to move her body from the neck down. She has suffered tremendously. I, I mean, I've read about her suffering. It's not just that she can't move. Well, I, I have time to go into it. She suffers a lot. And God's used her to speak on suffering. 
She writes books, she speaks, she loves Jesus. She's a powerful testimony. And so you know why they interviewed her? She's 60. This happened years ago. Why are they still talking to her? Because she was diagnosed now with breast cancer. So on top of all of this, she has breast cancer. And so they ask her all these questions, very sensitive, very helpful. Here's the last question of the interview, and it applies to what were this passage. What teachings of Jesus especially help you understand suffering? Here's a lady who knows about suffering. This is her answer. This is what Jesus has taught me about suffering. There's the portion of Scripture in Matthew 18, her answer, where Jesus says, if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Hear Jesus, the one who delighted in healing hands that could not work, delighted in restoring feet that could not walk, delighted in giving sight to eyes that could not see. Here he is saying, cut off your hand and gouge your eyes out. If these things are causing you to sin. Jesus underscores his priority that yes, yes, the physical body counts, but it does not trump the health of the soul. And then this is what she's saying. So she's making this point. There can be physical things. God does bring healing. By the fact, matter of fact, in the article, she says, if you're sick, if you're suffering, you should go get prayer. You should get anointed with oil by the elders. She's all for the prayer of healing. She talks about that in here. But she says there's something greater. As a matter of fact, Jesus, who heals, says uh, instead of you know recovery of sight to the blind, there's a place to gouge the eye out. He's speaking metaphorically. If it causes you to sin, because he's more concerned with your heart before God than he is your physical sight, is what she's saying. There's an order. And so this is what she says. This is the last lines of the interview. I couldn't believe this. He says, she says, when people ask about healing, I'm less interested in the physical, though she's been prayed for, and more interested in healing in my heart. And then she gives her prayer request. All her, all her adult life, quadriplegic, now facing breast cancer, pray. Pray that I get rid of my lazy attitude about God's Word and prayer. Pray that I get rid of my brute pride. Pray that God set me free from self-centeredness. Those are more important. Because Jesus thought... They were more important. She gets it. Certainly she'd like to be healed. Certainly she's prayed for healing. But she's been able to look beyond that and say, you know, there's all kinds of physical circumstances, financial, relational, health, job, unrealized dreams, problems. There's, There's all kinds of problems in life. I'd like God to cut through all that. Yeah, you can pray for those problems, but I'd like God to cut through all that and deal with my heart. I'd like God to cut through all that and show me himself. Here's a woman who's saying, I'd like God to cut through all that and show me himself so that my heart is enlivened to his word and prayer and I'm not lazy about those things, but my heart's aflame. She's saying, I'd like God to work in a way, and she's a very humble person. I mean, this is devastating to me to hear her say this. She's a very humble person. What I'd like is to God to lay me out in humility before Him because I see His holiness. And so it's not my brute pride that animates me, it's the holiness of God. That's what I want. 
I want that more than walking is what she's saying. I'd like God to work in me so that I see his love and I see the cross. I mean, I'm filling out what she's saying, but I see the cross of Christ and I see the giving nature of the Savior. So I'm not self-centered, but I'm selfless. I'm living my life, taking what I have and investing it and spending it and giving it to others so that I'm less self-centered. I would rather be less self-centered and love others than I would walk is what she's saying here if I had to pick. Oh, I'd love to walk. Pray for that. But really pray that God meets me in this. Whatever you think your greatest need is today, whatever I think, there's a greater need. And God loves us enough to meet us, to give us His Word, to touch us, to change us. And He'll use everything to do so, including healing. That's what he used in this guy's life, including healing, including financial blessing, including changed relationships, including realized dreams. He'll use all kinds of stuff. But whatever he uses, we want to be at the place where we say, it's not me coming to you on my terms. It's me coming to you on your terms. The Galileans, they're interested in Jesus on their terms. You got a sign, I'm interested you feeding 5,000, count me in. You're casting out demons. i got a few uh, possessed folk I know. Let's get them free. And I'm all about the exorcism meeting where he's casting out demons. I'm all about the healings. I'm all about the miracles. I'm all about the excitement and the buzz. And so Jesus, if you'll do that for me, I'll follow you. And he's saying, that's not the kind of welcome that God deserves. The kind of welcome that God deserves is, I am needy, God. I come to you. You're the only hope I have. And whatever happens in my life, I want to praise you. Here's the concluding, almost concluding verses of Habakkuk 3. I'm not going to develop the story of that book, but look at these words from the prophet. He says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines. That means people could starve, okay? That's what he's talking about. He's not talking, I went down the produce section, and man, they were all out of strawberries. We are so, I mean, we're just so not in reality, okay, for the most of the world and for all the history of the world. We're just not in reality. What is he saying? Oh, yeah, well, yeah, no fruit on the vines. Yeah, they were low on grapes, and the grapes they had weren't even good. I mean, we know. That's not what he's talking about. That's all you got. Your plants don't come up, you and your family don't eat. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines. The produce of the olive fail. And the fields yield no food. If the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I'll take my joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. Though the circumstances are not what I want, my joy is in the Lord and not the circumstances. That's what Jesus is talking about. I don't live there. I almost said all the time, more honestly would be, I don't live there a lot. But I want to live there. I want to know the Lord. I want to be gripped with that kind of faith. He took the word of the Christ and went on his way. And we take his word to us today as we go on our way.
Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Thank you.